A spectacular move by Giannis and Tutacuampo. No, that's not it. A spectacular move by Antinton Kwampa. Yes, Giannis. And it can't. Why don't we just call him Greek? Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. I, I feel like it's been about a year since the last episode. Since then, season has kicked off. All kinds of craziness has ensued. Brooke Lopez is shooting 30-footers. Brooke Lopez has made more three-pointers than I think all of the 1980s combined. So before we do anything else, Milwaukee. Man, what a start to the season for the Milwaukee Bucks. I think a lot of folks, myself included, thought they would be much improved. I shot out a tweet on opening night saying that they were going to be in that top four mix in the East, but clearly thus far they've overachieved. Swap out Jason Kidd at coach for Coach Budenholzer, uh, and he's done a fantastic job. And then they're just playing this five out with Brooke Lopez as a three-point threat, gets a lot of space for Giannis. So all those pieces were predictably there. I think what's been unpredictable about the Bucs or where they've significantly overachieved one on the defensive end they're playing fantastic defense led by Giannis whose defense is really getting to that like all league level for me we'll we'll see where it is at the end of the year but uh, some of the games I've seen just his length uh, his ability to close recover obviously impact shots around the rim and then rebound which is how you finish a defensive possession is providing pretty big value. So Milwaukee's coming in with not just an improved offense, but a really good offense and a really good defense. And that's a sustainable formula. In fact, as of recording this, the Bucks are outscoring opponents by about 12 points per game after 13 games into the season. So if you look at the numbers historically, only about 30-something teams, in fact, 32 teams have outscored their opponents by that margin or more in their first 13 games. We're not trying to say, you know, Milwaukee is the 33rd best team ever here or anything like that. Instead, what we're doing is just grabbing the exact point in time that we're at, 13 games in, and comparing the other best starts ever. And first, we can say Milwaukee is in this elite group of teams that have jumped out of the gate on fire. Many teams have done it, but they're in the group. And secondly, what has happened to those teams by the end of the year? What, what does it really mean? How much stock can we put in something to say, well, you're outscoring your opponent by 12 points per game? Actually, in the Bucks case, they've had a hard schedule, so their adjusted point differential, SRS, is about 14 and change, which is really, really good. But the schedule will flatten out by the end of the year. No one plays a schedule over the course of the year that's worth two or two and a half points. So that'll come down. So just for the simplicity of the exercise, I looked at points per game, a margin of victory without the schedule. Okay, so what happens to those teams? Well, first, before we even look at those teams, 
with the some of the research I've done in the past on healthy lineups. That is to say, what happens when your core lineup is together? How we define core is somewhat fluid, but it could be 25-minute players. It could be your top five guys in the lineup. Uh, whatever it is, it's the idea that you have a, a core group of players that impact the game, your top four, five, six guys. And when they're together, the team is built around them and they work. And when they're out of the lineup, injured, whatever, uh, the team could potentially lose something. So when the teams are healthy, after 13 games, 95% of the time, you'll be within six points of your final 82-game full-season performance. Six and change, in fact, after 13 games. So what that means is if you are a 500 team right now, 95% of the time, you'll finish with a point differential about six, six and a half points better than average or six points below average. So first takeaway that you should stop if, if, if you haven't heard me pound the table about this over the years is that basketball is a high variance sport and 13 games, even though, you know, it's uh, whatever that comes out to 600 minutes of court time or something like that, uh, that is a, that is a lot of uncertainty after 13 games. It's not a large sample. It's still a relatively small sample. And it actually takes some time before your team performance stabilizes, before you can confidently start to say, oh, okay, I have an idea of how good this team's going to be at the end of the season. Once we get to the 30-game mark, then 95% of teams are within about three points of their final standing. So that's still that still can be a big difference. That's not something to brush aside. But the difference, this is a nonlinear thing that's happening. The difference in stability and, or being able to say, okay, this team's really good after 10 games and after 30 games is night and day. Right now, there's still a, a large degree of uncertainty. And as we start to move toward the middle of the season, we'll be a lot more confident in not only the order, like the shuffling of the deck and the order that the standings play out in, those will start to resemble where they'll be at the end of the year, uh, all things being equal, like health and trades. But we'll also have a much better idea of exactly how many wins this team is headed for. 55 to 60 versus 45 to 50. Those are, those are two totally different brackets of teams. Those are two different classes of teams. In the case with the Bucks, of those, first, so there's 30 teams that have been better, what did I say, 32 teams that have been better than Milwaukee after 13 games to start the season. Of those 32 teams, 13 went on to win the NBA championship. This is in the whole history of the league. A couple were back before the shot clock, I think one or two. So that's 40% of the teams that have started like this go on to win the title. Another 40%, they make the finals or the conference finals. So three quarters of these teams that have started like this end up at that championship level, end up at that final four duking it out level. That's really, really good. Now, if you look at teams that have started the first 13 games with a double-digit margin of victory, that is to say, outscoring their opponents by 10 or more, 63 teams fit that bill. And of those 63 teams, 
almost every single one finished the season with an SRS above five. That's an adjusted point differential above five. If you're not familiar with point differential, one, get familiar with it. It's the way to fly. Two, it it five point differential for a team, a plus five point differential usually means they're going to win about 55 or 56 games. In other words, there's a very tight relationship between point differential and wins. So almost every single one of these teams that starts like this finishes with a point differential above five. In fact, of the 63, there were only 11 teams. Yes, 11 teams. So of the 63, there were only 11 teams who finished the season with an SRS under five. And if you look at those teams, even fewer remained healthy. In other words, the lineup that produced that wonderful start after 13 games, most of the time changes in some way. So take, for instance, let me let me reel off a couple of the recent teams that have started like this. The 2017 Clippers, they had a 14-point margin of victory, 14.2 after 13 games. Chris Paul and Blake Griffin both missed 21 games. When they were healthy, they were a far better team. They were like a 60, I think a 61-win team. Again, I'm pulling that off the top of my head. They were in that ballpark. They finished with a 4.4 SRS. But I, I think the point here is we care about how well the team played over a larger sample when they're healthy. If a team gets in, if Milwaukee gets injured, we can't really predict that. And we have no idea what that means about their performance, nor do we necessarily care. We're not really trying to size the Bucks up without Giannis or Chris Middleton or someone like that. So the Clippers were the last team to do this, 2017, who failed to have a, a final SRS above five. Another one, 2015 Dallas Mavericks. Whoa, where'd that come from? After the first 13 games, they were plus 12.2. They actually did fairly well with that lineup, but then they were hit with some injuries and then a trade. So not the same team the rest of the year that finished plus 3.4. A lot of these teams, when they were healthy, still performed very well. So if you look at the 98 Knicks, one of the classic. So 99 gave rise to the Ewing theory. The problem with that was in 1998, Patrick Ewing missed a bunch of games along with Larry Johnson. And when they were healthy, they were really good. And without them, they were not good at all. So that team started 9-4 and four with a plus 12.2 differential. And they were actually a plus 8 team when they're healthy, which is fantastic. They only The problem was they were only healthy for 27 games. So they also finished the season under this arbitrary plus 5 benchmark that we're looking at here. Another team, 2015 Toronto Raptors. They started plus 12 as well, 11-2 and two record after 13 games, and they ended up finishing plus 2.5. The, the, again, though, that team was 28-13 and 13 with DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry. So most of these teams, 92 Spurs, another one, started plus 10.6. They finished plus 2.8. That's because David Robinson missed a bunch of games. When that team was healthy, they were about plus 7. Very few of these teams actually continue the season with the same lineup, remain healthy, 
and drop below this line. Uh, based on my notes here, the 79 Sonics did it. The 79 St- Sonics started plus 10-6. They finished with a 2.7 SRS, and they won the NBA championship. So uh, it was a, a parody-heavy environment, and they were able to still go on and win the title. Uh, the 2012 76ers. Now, I think some of that was from a lockout, and maybe we have that same situation this year with all of the all of the variability from the rule changes that we'll talk about in a minute adding some noise and some chaos. But that Philadelphia team started 14.9, an extremely hot 13 games, and that's because teams can get hot for 13 games that aren't really that good. They still finished with a plus 3.6 SRS. Another one, the 81 Suns, they cooled down. They went from plus 10 to plus 4.8. 77 Nuggets, another one of those situations where that was the first year of the merger, so lots of volatility as the leagues came together. They started plus 10-5. They finished 5-5. So all of these things, this is this is looking at the floor from, from Milwaukee right now. And the floor from Milwaukee just looks fantastic. Final set of numbers on this. Of the teams that started plus 10 or better after 13 games, 79% finished above plus 5. This is not including health or controlling for health or anything like that. For instance... The 18 Warriors last year started like gangbusters after 13 games. They were plus 12 after 13 games. And of course, they were in that ballpark when they were healthy, but they were rarely healthy. So they finished the season with something like a, a plus 6 SRS because of injuries and all the things that go with that. So this does this isn't even controlling for health. But if we just look at the, the, the trajectory of of a team like this, 79% of the time, that's 50 of the 63 teams, they finish above plus five. Two-thirds of the time, they finish above plus six. 43% of the time, they finish above plus seven. And now we're getting into rarefied all-time championship air. And 22% of the time, they finish above plus eight, including a number of all-time teams like Jordan's Bulls from 92 and 97 and, and so on and so forth. And as I said, uh, 40% of those teams who started better than Milwaukee won a title. There's a number of title teams who also had double-digit starts after 13 games in terms of margin of victory. And this isn't entirely a... This is a statistical exercise, but the thought experiment is, of course, not contained to just the numbers. Just like any good piece of analytics or data information, we can apply it to the context. And what we see contextually is Brooke Lopez being a legitimate, dangerous 3 and D center. I think we've always wanted like a great 3 and D center. There have been some over the years who kind of fit that role, but it's the difference between being a Jaron Jackson level 3 and D center and a guy who just smokes three-pointers and then Brooks not the greatest defender at this point he never was but he adds to a lot of the stuff that Milwaukee does in terms of their length their rebounding their interior presence and so when we look at the film I've only seen a handful of Bucks games this year but they've they've jumped out to me in terms of what they're able to do I think this is a team that is here to stay I think the floor for them is looking like you know 50 mid 50s 
at this point, and I think a, a pretty healthy trajectory, is that Milwaukee is going to win 55 to 60 games, and they are going to challenge for the top seed in the Eastern Conference. And as an aside, it looks like they're going to challenge Toronto. Uh, all that can change. Jimmy Butler's coming to Philadelphia, and it's to be determined how well those pieces fit in terms of hitting a ceiling. But Toronto looks fantastic, and Milwaukee is the other team in the East and across the league really, really uh, standing out at this point. On the offensive side, along with Lopez, Chris Middleton is playing. If he's not at an all-star level, he's just below it uh, shooting. I mean, he's just been fantastic. And Brogdon is another guy in the starting lineup who has really played well within his role. I think the fact that they don't have a second superstar next to Giannis, Giannis still has some gaps in his game, Brogdon still has many limitations, on and on and on. We can go all the way down the line. I think that gives you a pretty healthy argument to say Milwaukee can be had in the playoffs. They they can, and Nate Duncan talks about this a lot, and we talked about it on the last episode. If you guys haven't heard that, we did a two-part series on some of the greatest players ever uh, and then finished with, I guess it was a four-part series, but it was a two-parter on this podcast, Thinking Basketball. We did uh, two more over on Dunked On, and one of the things he talked about in that is these days more than ever, matchup specific situations in the playoffs, targeting players, taking away players, uh, weaknesses being exposed that could be a function of uh, space and scheduling and increased analytics and knowledge and all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, the rules of the game uh, that lending itself to that kind of matchup situation. And I think Milwaukee, much like many blossoming, emerging teams in the past, uh, can be probably had in the playoffs. So when I see them, I don't see a team that is laser-focused uh, or careening toward the championship, if you will, like last year's Houston Rockets. But man, Milwaukee is really, really good. And they're they're going to be there in the Eastern Conference. Uh, I think one of the other teams can absolutely take them out and probably without, I mean, we could do a whole other podcast on how they match up, but I think that's something to save for the spring. But man, Bucks are the real deal. Have you been over to Warriors Rings and Things yet? It's an all-new digital shopping experience, unlike anything else in basketball. There's all kinds of random trinkets of knowledge and memorabilia related to Golden State and, and then some. For instance, Clay has an entire interactive video series on beards and hairstyles called Quaffing with Clay. Uh, Steph gets in there with a video on that series uh, just on wispy facial hair strategies alone. It's fantastic. Kevin Durant auctions all of his burner accounts off uh, every couple months. And, of course, you can pick up your versions of the classic uh, T-shirt, I Just Did Your Effing Podcast. Uh, that comes in long sleeve, V-neck. You can get it in many colors. It's just a, a wonderful web store, one of the most fun shopping experiences I've had. Uh, Boogie Cousins. New Warrior even has a book called Technicals in Street Clothes. It's all about uh, Boogie and his sideline experiences. And last but not least, you can get a replica 2019 championship ring for the Golden State Warriors, which has, I I'm told in the preview, nine square inches of storage space for, I guess, whatever you want to keep handy 
when you are blinged out. It's Warriors ring, Rings and Things. Check them out today. Okay, the last thing I really wanted to discuss about the start of the season is the incredible numbers that are being put up across the league. So, for instance, if we just go to basketball reference and look at their top 10 MVP candidates, they have a model that takes historical voting into account, looks at team success and the statistical profile of a player, spits out top 10 MVP candidates at any given time. And if we look at those guys and just look at some of the stat lines across the board, Kevin Durant, 27-7-7 on 56% shooting. This is going to be field goal percentage because their little preview doesn't have actual true shooting. Steph Curry, 36-5. Giannis, 25-13-6. Joel Embiid, 28 points per game, 13 boards, 4 assists. Some of these numbers that are being put up. DeMar DeRozan, 25-7-7. These guys are all playing great, don't get me wrong. But the point is, we have seen a flurry of tweets to start the season or even uh, embedded statistics inside articles that say only three players have ever had 32 points, 16 rebounds, and eight assists in a game under the age of 26 and a half or whatever it may be. This has become very commonplace. And the thing is, we're going to see more first-time occurrences like that, or first-time since 1968, or just the fourth player ever. So uh, another one I saw recently was Luka Doncic has a raw stat line of 26-4, and four, something like that. He's got 20 points per game, 6.5 boards, 4.5 assists after 12 games, and only two or three of the all-time greats have ever done that as rookies. I think Michael Jordan was in that class and a few other all-timers. Now, the thing is, that's deceptive. And anybody who has followed me for a while or is a patron and supports the show and has access to some of those historical patron documents that I share, you'll always see things adjusted to the league. So it's not raw true shooting percentage. It's relative true shooting percentage. It's not raw defensive rebounding. It's relative defensive rebounding, and so on and so forth. It's not raw points per game. It's points per 75 possessions. The reason for this is the same reason we're seeing all these explosive numbers as first to do this, first since 1957, et cetera, et cetera. That is because of the league-wide changes that have facilitated these kinds of performances. So as of right now, 13 games into the season, we are sitting on the all-time record for offensive rating. That means the scoring environment in the league is the easiest it's ever been. It's the highest points per possession, just under 110, 109.6. And I actually think one of the interesting questions of the season is whether or not the league average will hit 110. It was at 110 at the start. Typically, it starts slow. Defenses are ahead of offenses. This year, it's been the exact opposite pattern. And my hypothesis for why it's been the opposite pattern is the officiating. The freedom of movement rules, very tight whistles, and this has not only... What this does is it not only rewards players with free throws, but 
it opens up the movement as it's intended to do. And so there's a meta effect where you know you can't ride a guy. You know you have to take a different angle. Um, you know if you come over on help that you might as well not foul. And so everything gets a little bit easier across the board. This, of course, uh, is combined with other rules that have been slowly sliding toward the offense year after year for decades. I'll talk about those in a minute. But first, just look at these numbers. The all-time, no one's ever had, we've never had a league with an offensive efficiency of 109, ever. The all-time record was two years ago, 108.8. And that was only the second or third time, it had been done a couple times in the 80s, I guess. 80s and 90s, it had hovered around 108. But very rare to have an environment that's so offensive friendly that you're up at 108. It's healthy for the league. Fans seem to respond very well above 106, 107. Uh, that is points per 100 possessions. But we've never had anything over 109. And to start the season, we were ticking off at 110. So my guess is we actually have the opposite pattern this year. And we regress downward as the year goes on and the officiating regresses a little bit back to where it was that's when you have these changes that sometimes can be what happens Uh, but 110 is just bonkers you know 110 used to be an all-time great offense 112 used to be an all-time great offense now it doesn't get you much better than league average so the reason we're seeing all these numbers is not just because of the efficiency it's because of pace pace is up we're back over 100 as of recording this we're at 100.3 that's the league average for pace 100.3 possessions every 48 minutes. To put this in perspective, the seven seconds or less Suns, Steve Nash's Suns, back in the heyday, 2005, 6, 7, they played at a pace of 96. They never topped 97. That was the Suns, seven seconds or less. Now the league average for the entire league is 100. The fastest teams in the league are up at 106. Sacramento, Atlanta, Lakers are 104. In fact, only one team, Memphis, is below the seven seconds or less Suns. Only one team is under 96.7 as of recording this. What does this mean? What does it all mean? All these trends are moving toward the offense. So we're playing really fast. We're really efficient. Turnover percentage is right near its all-time low at 12.7% league-wide, so players are turning the ball over less. And even defensive rebounding percentage, because teams hit the offensive glass less, the defensive rebounding percentage is 77% league-wide. That means the defense grabs 77% of all available shots that come off the rim, miss. That's right behind the all-time record from last year. When you add it up, you have an environment that not only is going to lend itself to a lot of fantastic raw stats, but if your composite stats, if your box plus minus, if your whatever flavor of the day stat doesn't account for that, and it's used to one environment, all of the offensive numbers are going to be inflated. So any of those stats that don't adjust for some kind of league norm are all going to look incredible. And I actually think that's one of the biggest challenges with some of our all-in-one advanced stats is sometimes they're trained on a particular environment and they perform slightly better or worse in different decades. 
because of that. That's that's a discussion for another show, though. The, the, the final point I want to make here is a contextual one. It's hard to make in a podcast. I've tweeted some things about it. Uh, if you haven't seen, if uh, I have a piece that I wrote last year, I think, it's called The Visual History of Spacing. Check out that piece because that's just one element of this. But it talks about spacing. It talks about uh, the relaxation of dribbling rules. I think going back every decade, palming and carrying have changed the way they're officiated. And that's going to organically reduce your turnover percentage. Because much like if you think about hockey, you know, in hockey, it's hard to stick handle without losing the puck. Well, the easier you make that, you know, the the more you, if you put Velcro on the stick, or I don't know, coming up with a horrible analogy here, but the idea is the easier it is to possess the ball, uh, the easier it is to control it, and thus you're going to mitigate against turnovers. You're also going to make the scoring path in general more amenable. It's, it's going to be easier for the offense. You also have continuation. Continuation, it used to be hard to get an and one. You really had to be in the middle of shooting, and the idea was you got hit while you shot, and so there's a reward. Now, it's almost a st- strategic component. When you feel contact, you go into a move. They're almost always getting the continuation. The continuation between now and 10 years ago is more liberal toward the offense. And back in the 80s and certainly 70s, it's like night and day. And yes, at first, uh, even the, the little moving into the margins and taking advantage of the most subtle little opportunities were only performed by the wisest of players. Jason Kidd or Chris Paul would come flying down the court. Someone would nudge them and they would realize, I'm going to get some contact. I might as well flail up a shot, see if I can get two free throws or in the act of shooting. And sometimes they would. Sometimes the referees, when players start hacking rules, historically, sometimes the referees don't like it. And a player will essentially say, wait, I literally went into the act of shooting because I just because I knew the guy was going to foul me doesn't mean it shouldn't be a shot. You still see this sometimes at the end of games where there's an intentional foul coming, a team is ahead, and the player will shoot. And it's a bit risky if you mistime it, but the official will not give them the three-shot foul. And I think by the letter of the law, the player is right, but officials are not keen to doing that. Well, when Paul and Kid started this, They'd be running down the court in transition. They would feel a foul coming, and they'd go into a shot that otherwise appeared unnatural. Now I feel like the whole league does this. So continuation is a huge thing. And again, hard to... It's it's a better topic for a YouTube video or a visual article than a pod. But when you put it all together, traveling, palming, continuation. I mean, let's look at traveling. It used to be a two-step concept. The two-step concept had to do with basically getting an extra step once you are done with your dribbling motion. The rules have always been written in a very loose interpretive kind of way. It's not exactly legalese if you read the chapter on traveling that's been in place for a long time. The evolution of that was in the 80s and 90s as Jordan was helping to popularize the game globally to allow guys to legit take two steps. Patrick Ewing lumbering across the lane, Jordan knifing into the paint, putting the ball on his hip, getting that one-two glide. Anything else was traveling. When you 
you know, took a shot or pivoted in the post or up faked and then went into a dribble. A lot of travel calls in those situations. Today, we've added, so we went from like one, one and a half steps to two steps. Uh, now we have a generous two steps. Now we have the gather concept. This is new. If you weren't around 20, 30 years ago, this is new. The gather is a thing that permits what used to be traveling. Heck, Euro steps used to be called traveling. And Euro steps, when done a certain way, have always been legal, or at least uh, legal since the 80s in the way they interpreted the two steps. The Euro step can be illegal if a guy hops, pauses, hops again. So there is kind of this uh, language in the rule book, I believe. Uh, you guys can um, correct me or kind of uh, clarify for those who want to get technical out there. But you, there's a certain uh, kind of continuation you need to your movement. Well, how much do you allow guys to stop? When you start zigzagging, can you hop left? Wait a second, hop right, and then finish? Like, how fast does it have to be if your body control is really good? And that's the, I, I'm, I'm concerned that's the next thing in the Euro step. So between the Euro step and the gather and all this stuff, what's happening is fans who aren't watching the game as much, you miss a couple years, are coming back and watching the moves of guys like James Harden, Giannis, all, you know, all down the line. And they're saying, that's travel, that's a travel. If that's not a travel, I don't know what a travel is. And this is really just in line with the history. The guys were saying that in the 90s that watched the game predominantly in the 70s. So all of these relaxations on the rules are A, why you're seeing these big numbers. Um, yes, there is a component of evolution of strategy. It's constantly at play here. Teams are getting smarter. They're using data. Their scouting is better. The software and tools are better. The players are great. But don't think that the players have magically become uh, something, e even three-point shooting, even the way the game has gone with Mori Ball. That is a trade-off. That is, that is a math trade-off. There's no reason players in the old days couldn't have shot a bunch of threes if they practiced threes. When you practice threes, you need to learn essentially a 24-foot shot or a 24-foot shot and a 22-foot shot in the corner. When you have a mid-range game, you need to train your brain to gauge the difference in arc at 11 feet, 13 feet, 16 feet, 20 feet, 21 feet. It's a lot harder. So that's where we are today. And look, it's exciting. It's fantastic. I am in no way trying to take anything away from these guys. I just want people to realize that when you compare stats across eras, when you say, you know, this is the first time we've seen this since 1968. First time you've seen this since 1968 is because there were 115 possessions in the game, not 90 like there were 10 years ago. And because the offensive efficiency and the nature of the stats you're looking at, even again, even defensive rebounding, they are all, this is fertile ground for these kinds of huge numbers. And, and the league loves it, but just keep that in mind when you're uh, comparing. As always, I want to thank my wonderful patrons. Uh, you guys have been awesome both in your support and your communication. Uh, if you want to support the show, 
it's really made possible by Patreon. You can check out uh, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. It's in the show notes. And if you sign up there, as of now, I do have a, a few historical documents along these lines that I share. I'm trying to add more. I got a bunch of work from this summer that uh, I'm going to add. The question is whether to add it in a spreadsheet. I'm trying to work on something that's a little uh, less cumbersome. So as always, thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you guys are enjoying the basketball and have a great day. I'll talk to you next time.